Welcome to the Demand Generation Show, Episode 4. Really excited today. We're talking to Mike Weinberg, the new sales coach. We're going to discuss prospecting, the state of selling for small mid-market businesses, and what you can do to accelerate sales success for your organization. Let's get started. Mike, welcome to the Demand Generation Show. We're really excited to have you on one of our very early episodes. Why don't you tell the audience that's not familiar with you just a little bit about yourself? Hey, Doug, thank you for having me. This is a treat. I've enjoyed getting to know you online, and it's fun to talk with you and your audience. Uh, I'm a sales guy. I'm originally from New York. I've been in St. Louis about 25 years, and today's a sad day here when we're recording this because the NFL and their greedy owner, Kroenke, ripped the Rams out from under the city. So there's kind of a depression hanging over us. Um, and I am a big NFL fan, so this affects me. Uh, so by trade, I'm a sales guy. I was a top sales hunter and turned into a consultant coach and, uh, and speaker. And I've got a couple books, never thought I'd, I'd be doing this and never, ever thought I'd be an author. And I guess if there was something you really wanted to know about me, my passion is helping companies and sales teams acquire more new business and uh, and get new clients. And I, I do that by focusing really in two areas, uh, new business development and sales leadership. So that's kind of what I do by day. I think that's why you and I got along uh, so quickly online is I always explain to people, whatever it is I might be doing at the heart, I'm a sales guy. And that's how I look at everything. And that's how I approach everything. Got to ask you a question related to the Cardinals. Since you're from New York, did you start off as a Jets Giants fan and convert or... What happened there? Uh, yeah. Um, I grew up, when I was a little kid, I was a Cowboys fan because the Giants were and the Jets were so pathetic. Um, but I morphed into being a New York Giants fan. And the one Super Bowl I did get to attend was uh, 1990 during Gulf War One, when the Giants played the Bills in the first of the Bills, four Super Bowls that they lost. And I got to watch the Giants, the Giants win that game. So that was kind of a highlight of my fandom. And then I moved to St. Louis, and it, on the baseball side, it took me about a year to change from the Mets to the Cardinals. But you cannot live in this town and not love the Cardinals. So baseball is easy. And then football, you know, the Rams were here, and uh, I got here after the Cardinals were gone, the same, the football Cardinals, and then been a Rams fan, kind of. It's been hard to root for them the last 10 years. but So that's kind of my NFL and baseball story. Yeah, you and I don't get along quite as well in the summer because I'm a diehard Nationals fan. I get a 20-25 games. Um Oh, that's cool. Yeah, actually, I, I, as I told you, I come to D.C. when the Cardinals are in town. I've got seats 10 rows behind the Nationals dugout. Uh, we'll argue. We'll have fun. All right. I'm, all right that, offer accepted. There you go. Excellent. There. Excellent. All right. Let me ask you my, my favorite uh, icebreaker question. What was the first concert you ever saw? Oh, my. All right. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. From Down Under, Men at Work at <laughs> Saratoga Springs Outdoor Concert Center in upstate New York. Very cool. Very yeah. cool. I, I actually, that's one of the bands I never saw that, that I wish I had seen. Uh, they don't have a lot of material and all the songs sound the same, but <laughs> it does make you want a Vegemite sandwich. That's right, but they're fun. They're fun. They were fun. Um, well, great. Well, I'll tell you what, um, as you know, the name of the show is the Demand Generation Show. Um, the focus of what we try to do is really bring all these, you know, kind of bring together all these sales and marketing strategies and, and talk about how they apply for small and mid-market businesses. You know, it's really easy or, it, you know, it's different for IBM in terms of how they go to market than, 
you know, a, a five or $25 million company and what they do. So the one question we ask every guest is, how do you define demand generation and why is it important? Mm. I'm going to answer the second part of the question first. It's important because if there's no top line, there's no bottom line. And we're all you know, like you. I'm a proud sales guy and unashamed. So uh, top line revenue growth is everything. Nobody ever cut costs on their way to greatness. Um, <clears throat> if I had to define demand generation, that's a tough one. Maybe it's the um, I would say maybe it's the act of getting uh, customers or potential customers to uh, to take a look at you and, and get their interest up and potentially letting you help them. I wouldn't say it's closing the sale, but it's it's, it's the things we would do marketing and sales wise to get attention and and draw people into a dialogue so we'd have the opportunity to serve them and sell them. Very good. Very good. L let me ask a question of you that I know is uh, near and dear to your heart and in your normal um, you may not be a politician. You only know one way to speak, which is bluntly the day after the State of the Union address. Nice time to uh, use that type of uh, approach. What's your take on the health of sales organizations in mm. the small and mid-market space? Mm. It's not a pretty picture. Um, I'll tell you what I told, I told someone recently. They were asking me about my business and the books. I told them that even if I wasn't good at training and consulting, I would have plenty of business because there's so much hurt out there. And I, and I wasn't trying to be funny or, you know, overly uh, falsely humble. Um, it's not good. And I would say that, that 90 to 95% of the engagements I have and the, and the calls I get are with companies that are hurting for more sales. Um, and I think if there's a lot of reasons and I'm sure we'll get into these, but I think you could probably divide them evenly between uh, sales process, salespeople, sales talent, and then uh, lack of sales management. And unfortunately, it's there's a lot of confusion and a, and a lot of uh, underperformance right now in the world of sales in general. How do we get there? Boy, <clears throat> you know, I, I got a couple theories. Uh, one of them is simple, and I, you know, all, all of my my answers are anecdotal. I don't have empirical research, and you and I will argue about probably something later on. I bet about about stats and numbers, but. My theory is I'm 48 years old. So take take the average salesperson today at whatever age he might be or she might be. Um, if you've been selling about as long as I have or even a little less, most of their careers of salespeople were during good times. You know, if you take if you look at the last 20 years or so, I think most of the economy was good. We had a the you know internet bubble burst and then followed up by 9-11 and that couple years slowdown, and then we had a great run again in the 2000s until the real estate bubble burst. And then we had a couple of years of pain and then we're back again. So I think there's a lot of people in sales that did really well when they didn't have to worry about creating demand, to use your phrase. They weren't didn't have to generate their own demand. Um, so they were great at being reactive and responsive and they were relational or they were product experts and they did fine as long as there was enough inbound demand. Um, but that doesn't work when there's not enough demand coming at you. I think, I think another cause, Doug, is that a pretty high percentage of the people in sales roles today are really wired more like farmers or, or I like to use the term zookeepers. Um, they're, they're, they're nurturers, they're relational, they're great at details and projects, but they're not hunters. They don't want to go kill stuff. They like to care for animals, not kill them. Well, so they got the wrong people in the wrong roles and that's issues. Um, I, I think sales management has lost its mind. I think companies 
have forgotten the job of the sales manager. Um, we bury the sales manager in crap. We think he's a desk jockey and should be a salesforce.com administrator. Um, we lead by email instead of getting in a guy's car or in the inside sales bullpen. <clears throat> so lots of things around there. And then finally, which I know we'll get to this topic, there's confusion in the market because there's a lot of people that are supposedly experts in the sales improvement business preaching stuff that isn't necessarily true about, about how to get demand and whether proactive selling still works today. And there's, there's a whole movement of trying to tell people that the old way of doing things is dead. And I, I granted things have changed and I'm sure we'll, we'll dive into that topic, but everything that used to work is not dead. And uh, it's still okay to call people and, and pursue prospects that aren't coming your way. And um, some of the magic bullets that are being sold to us aren't quite as magical as promised. So when you combine the history of the economy and the talent mix in sales roles and poor sales leadership, and then the confusion in the, in the sales literature today, I think all of that comes together to go, ooh, it's a, it's a little scary out there in sales. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I have a quote that I oftentimes share when I'm doing training or when I'm talking to executives about growth, and, and I agree with you about the whole economy. I, I tell people that just because the fish were jumping in your boat, it doesn't mean you're an angler. And, uh, and, and I think we had you know, 10, 15 years where a lot of salespeople and, and organizations were able to paddle their boat around and, and have the fish jump in. And then I go back to another quote, back when I was a financial advisor, they start to confuse brains with the bull market. They say, look what I did. And they really had very little to do with that. A, a question I've never actually had the, the chance to, to ask you, the nature of the talent pool that, you know, finding that person who wants to be a hunter, who wants to do the things that you and I did uh, when we started off in sales, it, it, it appears to be harder and harder to find those people. So what should the owner of a mid-sized company do to ensure their business can sustain growth given the talent pool that's being attracted to sales positions? Mm, that's a loaded, pregnant Powerful <laughs> question. I mean, that's a that's a huge, especially in the small and mid-sized space, because you have limited resources and you can only hire so many people. Um, I, I, I'm going to say something a little contrarian at first, just to, to kind of shake it up. I would like senior executives and HR people to stop looking for collaborative team players when they're hiring salespeople. It's a bunch of politically correct nonsense. I, I want a killer. I don't want a team player. I want a difficult, high-maintenance, driven money-hungry, competitive person who's not scared of no, that's a hunter. And, it, and, and, and the people telling you you want a team player who's going to play nice, I disagree. I could take you into dozens of my clients and show you the top producer. And in one or two of them, that person is very compliant and very collaborative. In a lot of those companies, it's not the case. And I, I wouldn't encourage people to behave that way. But when you have a top producer, sometimes that's the baggage that comes along with it. So all of that to say, the number one thing we should do is better define our sales roles. We need relational product uh, expert, uh, product management, project management, service people in certain roles where we need to maintain business and serve customers. But we also need people that want to go out, pick up a weapon and hunt for new business that are wired to do that. And, those, and they should be in those specific roles. That's why it's one of the topics I, I tackled in Sales Management Simplified, a one-size-fits-all approach to sales talent roles fails because we're all wired differently. So I would I would really do the hard work if I was an owner or a manager in a, in a, in a smaller company 
to define the roles better. What do you need? Don't make it one job that fits everybody, some kind of hybrid or tribrid role. Let's let's get the right people in the right jobs and make sure when you're hiring a hunter, I would ask very specific questions about how they how they won business in the past. I want stories of past deals that they won, how they dug that business out of the dirt. They turned over rocks. They went on the hunt. How did they create demand on their own? Because I, I, I got to flesh out if that person just was lucky or they had a lot of leads thrown at them or they were managing a portfolio of charity accounts that were handed to them. That's very different. That person might have been the top, top producer on paper, but it doesn't mean they went out and they won all that business. So does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think that in that interview, really digging deep and tell me what you really do and, and tell me if you agree with this. Anybody who tells you the story like it went without a hitch they're lying. You're, you're looking for that person who talked about all the obstacles and they thought they had lost it here, but they saved it there. Would you agree with that? Yes. Because and you and I, you know, we have sales stories, right? I mean, we've gotten tickets and we've made illegal U-turns and we've gotten thrown out of places and we've, you miss, you know, I miss, I miss my oldest kid's uh, middle school graduation because of a thunderstorm in the summer that kept me from flying home. You know, right. that wasn't glamorous, but that was part of sales. There's just there's if you've got stories, you've you've been there, you've done it. If you don't have stories, I'd be really hesitant. And I'm with you. It's not always easy. Oftentimes I, it's very hard. I think that's a great point. The question I've always wanted to ask you, and I promise you we're gonna get to the core issue that you and I go back and forth about in, in just a moment. <laughs> you, you're you are one of my favorite thinkers on on the sales side. The one thing I notice is you talk sales. You very rarely talk about the role of marketing. But I I believe that you believe in it. So I'm, you know, from your perspective as, as the new sales coach, what role does marketing play in the success of a sales organization? Oh my gosh. I like you. And that's a great question. Um, you know, I was a marketing major. Um, one of my professors at the university at Albany in New York was Bill Danko, Dr. William Danko. We were good friends. He wrote the book, the millionaire next door. And that's a whole funny story as I got to know him as he was trying to get tenure and struggling because he hadn't published enough. And then he ends up with his blockbuster number one New York Times bestselling book. So I got a great marketing education. I love marketing. If you ask me what I, what I wish would happen, I wish it'd be more marketing. Because very often, whether it's a big client or a small comp uh, company I go into, marketing is not doing much for sales. They're doing a lot of work. Uh, they're creating material. They're trying to work on the brand and the story and equipping the sales team with some weapons. But very often, the weapons they create don't work. Um, it's self-focused, gobbledygook language and product-centric messaging and um, overblown demos that are all feature-focused and just stuff that makes me makes my skin crawl, honestly, because it's not client-issue-focused. It's not usable in a sales situation. It's It looks canned. It looks... It just all that, all that stuff that goes with it. Um, what I really, if I really had a wish list, I mean, if I had a fantasy, I, I would, I would want two things from marketing and I'll, I'll save the obvious one for a second. What I really want first is great information and research. Do your job as a market ec marketing expert and point the sales team in the right direction. Tell them where the best fit is to go pursue business. And the second thing would be obviously create leads do demand generation, work on stuff so that I get a few a few freebies or at least easier ones served up to me on a platter. Obviously, that's wonderful. And when that happens, that's gravy. But if you're not going to do that, 
at least equip me with a list and great research so I know where I should focus my sales energy if you can't give me leads for me to attack on my own. Good stuff. And every marketer should have listened to what you just said. I, I, I couldn't have echoed sure. what you said any, any better than that. I, I think every person in a marketing department needs to spend at least a day, a quarter, side by side with a salesperson and oh, see what's yeah. really happening. Oh my goodness. I think, I think, I wish everyone in the company, Doug, and you probably do too, would get out and get out in the field or sit in the inside sales bullpen and watch and listen because Absolutely. it's not as glamorous as other people think it is. It's much harder. And then there's reality. You know, I always laugh when some operations guy starts to tell the sales team, Hey, we really like you. We would really like it if you would sell this offering because we got a lot of capacity to make this right. But we're oversold in this other thing. And I look at the operations guy and I go, have you sat in front of a customer lately? <laughs> are we going to go right. and tell the customer what he should buy? Or are we going to go and find out what he needs? Right. All right. Or, or, you know, what you really should be doing here is, and it's like, okay, well, have you actually ever talked to one of our customers? <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Any, any, anyone listening that's in operations or finance or production or whatever, um, and you want to go on a sales call or spend time with salespeople, you call me up and I'll, I'll hook you up with some salespeople. Be happy to take you around and show you, show your reality in the field. Perfect. Perfect. All right. Let, let's go to our favorite issue. I'm going to tee it up for you first, and then we'll get into uh, our, our conversation about it. Th there is just an absolute dearth of effective prospecting going on. Why are companies not prospecting? Mm. Oh, you scared me the way you set that question up. That wasn't as big of a hit as I thought you were coming at. Me. Oh, I'm coming. That's coming later. I oh. soften <laughs> the ground a little bit and then go at it. I'm going to get my catcher's gear on over here. Um, there's a dearth of prospecting, I think, for a couple of reasons. I'm going to give you a couple just off the top of my head. Um, a lot of people, they have bad tapes playing in their head. Uh, there's, there's mental baggage that comes with prospecting. We assume that if we're prospecting, it's a low-level activity. It means we're a low-level salesperson. We don't want to be that gal or that guy picking up the phone, calling a stranger, or God forbid, popping in on somebody. And I actually have a couple of clients in industrial type businesses. It's not the, not my norm, but I have a couple like that where the pop in is actually relatively effective. Um, so I think some people don't want to prospect because it feels like it's below them and they just don't want to do it. In other cases, I, I will be very uh, blunt here. Uh, they don't know how. They don't prospect because they're scared. And not just they don't like to do it. They don't want to do it, but they don't know how to do it. They've lived in a reactive role their whole life where they just worked what came their way or they managed a territory or a book of business or they got leads handed to them. And so when you look at them and say, hey, go find us some business, they don't know what to do. They don't know where to start. They don't know how to work a list. They are terrified of the phone. Um, does all those things kind of conspire to make a, a dearth of prospecting? I, I want to emphasize a, a point that you brought up before that, that I think a lot of companies miss or or underestimate especially small mid-market companies and that's how executives treat and talk about the prospecting phase so i'm going to kind of make a statement but i do want to get your take on it I, I was talking with a ceo a couple weeks ago and they were telling me how they were frustrated with one of their salespeople because he should be prospecting but he's you know keeps putting his hand in strategic things that he shouldn't be doing so i asked the ceo well well, how do you talk about prospecting? Tell me kind of how those conversations go, you know, and, and was the, well, well you got to do it because I'm not going to do it type of approach. And of course, the CEO always got excited whenever the conversation was about strategy. 
And, and so I told the CEO, I said, you can't talk about prospecting like it's this thing that, that you would hate to do. And because, I mean, I, I wrote a book actually several years ago called Managing the Office, which is about how management and raising kids are the same. And, and, and I don't, so I don't mean this in a degrading fashion, but our salespeople are our kids. And if they see us excited about one topic and not excited about another topic, then they're going to want to do the topic that we're excited about. So I advised him, I said, you got to talk to him about prospecting, like, not, not like, thank God you do prospecting, because I hate doing prospecting, but thank God you do prospecting, because I could never do it, and it's so important, and we wouldn't be able to do what we're doing if someone like you didn't prospect. And sometimes the way we talk about what we don't like to do, I think incentivizes the very people that we've hired to do something to not want to do it. Doug, that is so insightful because, and that's so, and we could spend the whole, we could have a whole other podcast just on the mindset of a salesperson. I mean, I totally applaud you and agree with what you're saying. And, I, and that plays itself out, not just in the motivation, but I will, I will go further and say into the effectiveness of the seller. When I'm teaching telephone prospecting, I put a picture up of a very uh, button down looking woman sitting in a very big executive office with nice windows. And I'm saying, this is who you are when you're prospecting. You're not some low level person that doesn't get respect sitting in a call center with 600 people, right? You know, uh, banging out phone calls to strangers. You're, you're a high level, important business person. And you're about to call other important business people that have problems. And you may have the very solution for them. You want to make this call. You're important. They're important. You're going to call and see if maybe there's a fit. That's a very different attitude than most people have, and, and they would have, especially coming out of the scenario you just described. Yep. All right, let's get to the fun part. I'm a firm believer in prospecting. It has to happen. It's not happening enough. I'm a fan of specialized prospecting. So you know we do sales development, and, and full disclosure to anybody listening, my company provides sales development um, services, which is a, a very focused prospecting effort where you have a team responsible for creating truly qualified sales ready leads. I always get the sense from you, Mike, that you're a fan of salespeople doing their own prospecting. So from your perspective, what do you like, don't like about those two strategies? Okay, I think I'm gonna disappoint you, but I'm also gonna excite you with this answer. I'm gonna disappoint you because I don't think we're gonna have the argument you think is coming. Uh. Um, but I'm gonna endorse what you do. I. I don't, I've never really said that I'm against outsourcing, prospecting, or specialization. What I yell about is that not enough people, whether it's outsourced or internal or specialized, the, the biggest problem in sales is that no one's spending enough time working the top of the funnel. And we always default to working the bottom of the funnel or the right side of the funnel because that's urgent and that's exciting. And those are people we're already talking to. Right or people that were trying to get to the level of hot, but maybe they're just active. But those those are much easier conversations to have. So I am not opposed to specialization. In fact, it, it almost goes along with the the chapter I was discussing from the book about talent, because I think we're all wired differently, and I I don't necessarily think all salespeople can or should prospect. Now I think there are a lot of superstars that do prospect, and I'm I mean my 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 little corner of the world is helping people prospect better. Um, that's one of the two things I spend most of my time on. But I'm okay if someone else is doing it as long as it's getting done. So um, I, I think that when there's an opportunity who wants to do that job, 
who is hired specifically for a dedicated role and well-equipped to do demand generation. And that would free up the, I don't want to call them higher level, but the the AE type or the, the hunter person to uh, not have to do some of that, that harder grunt work of getting the appointments. I'm okay with that. And I have a couple clients that I'm helping with that model right now where they've They've made some changes internally and they've got an SDR uh, inside, you know, and, and, and setting appointments. But I'm also at the same time reminding the, the hunters on that team. And I just I mean, I was literally there this Monday morning. I said, you've got to look at the appointments that that person creates for you as extra. You still have your own list of your own 65 accounts that you're pursuing. And I'm expecting each of you to identify new opportunities every month from your own personal development efforts and and the more we get from the other person, that's great too. So I'll, I'll stop there to let you kind of, we can have some dialogue, but I'm not as opposed as you think I am. Does that make sense? You know, I was afraid we were going to agree on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and I am excited that we agree on it because I mean, it, it, it does reiterate for me that, that yes, it does make sense. There, there is a challenge when you outsource prospecting or, or, not even outsource, but when you specialize. And I think you hit that point, which is as a salesperson, until that that volume is consistent, you, you've got to control your own destiny. And and frankly, if you're a hunter or a closer and you do no prospecting, then you're going to handle a new lead like a zookeeper. I, I love that term, by the way. I'm, I'm getting rid of farmer. I'm using zookeeper. You're, you're oh. going to handle that lead like a zookeeper. So you got to keep those those prospecting muscles sharp. So I'm going to go, I had a backup question for this in case we totally agreed on it. Um, <laughs> so I'm, sorry. Know, I'm sorry. No we didn't fight, I'm sorry we didn't fight harder. <laughs> That's right. No need for violent agreement, but uh, but I, 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 I think great, great points that you bring up there. And I think it's valuable for people to hear that. Um, I love your take on how selling hasn't changed. And, and I think you've seen some of the stuff I've written. Um, you know, I'm getting really frustrated with this whole term inbound selling, like, um, you know, focus on the client need. Like that's a new idea. Um, it's like, hello, if you sold 20 years ago with any success, you focused on the client need. Um, so I love the take on how selling hasn't changed and the whole social selling quackery. Talk to me from your perspective, how has it changed? Yeah, thank you for asking it the way you did. Um, and I, I'm gonna go on record. I say things that are extreme on purpose to swing the pendulum back. I don't, I don't believe things are as extreme as I make them. I'm just trying to bring some sanity back to the conversation. Like the conversation about inbound marketing and social selling. Frankly, those are wonderful things. Using social media to research, connect with, befriend, learn about, and even start a relationship with prospects is a brilliant thing to do. And inbound marketing that draws people to your site and they consume your content and almost give you permission or at least real reason to pursue them. Most awesome. I love it. But the problem is that the charlatans and the quacks, to use your phrase, it, that are preaching that stuff, they go so far in, their, in their, um, their theory by telling people, well, all of this new stuff is what works and all of the old stuff is dead and doesn't work. And that's really the dangerous lie. Because what do you tell the salesperson when their social selling attempts and all the, the work they're playing in LinkedIn groups and tweeting and, and, they're, and they're doing great content creation and blogging and that's a whole other conversation about salespeople writing blog posts, but I'll hold that for later. Um, so what happens when all that great inbound and social doesn't yield enough opportunities to work? So the pipeline is, is not as full as it needs to be to produce the business we need. 
well, what do you tell them then? Well, that, that stuff, you know, don't pick up the phone because that doesn't work. No, that's stupid. Of course, pick up the phone. Do it all. You know, you got, you, you, you use the phrase all bound, don't you? I read that somewhere. You, yep. you had that recently. In fact, you had a, that great article you had on LinkedIn the other day. Um, that, that you use all means necessary to get an appointment. So you, I, that was a long answer that didn't get to really what you asked me, but I, not everything has changed. What has changed is that the customer has no patience for sales BS. And if you cannot bring value and share insights and show how you can improve their condition, they have no time for you because everybody's running lean, everybody's overworked, and the internet puts information at everybody's fingertips in a nanosecond. So we do not need salespeople to be a walking brochure or a price quoter. That if that's what you're doing as a seller, you are about to become extinct. However, comma, however, big however, if you can ask great questions and share insight and you act like a consultant and you bring value and you you help, at, you, you know, quote the challenger sale, right? If you can push the customer out of their comfort zone and help them reframe their issues, you're going to bring value and then you have a chance. So what's changed is you can't just fake it and pontificate and be a walking brochure. That does not work anymore. Yeah, I always like to say a top salesperson isn't comfortable until their prospect is uncomfortable, and wow. and it takes a unique person to be able to 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 manage that process and um and be okay with it and, and lead to a great conclusion. Excellent point. That's cool. I want you to to pretend right now that you're sitting in a room, you're talking to a guy, a gal started a business 15 years ago, had a tremendous amount of success. Um, let's just say it's doing 10, 20, 30 million dollars of revenue. They've got a sales team of five to 10 people. Um, the last five years have been tough. They're still doing well, but they're not getting the success that they that they used to have. And, and they're getting really frustrated because, you know, at one point they saw the sky is the limit. And, and now they're wondering, well, can they really hit those objectives? Can they get that consistent growth? What would you tell them they need to be doing? to get back on that track of consistent growth? Yeah, that's a, that's a very broad question. I love it. I close my eyes and picture the situation. Those are my favorite companies where you can really make a difference when you know you got five to 10 salespeople and you got ownership in the room with you and they're struggling. Um, on the sales process side, I, I'm gonna give you the three things I regularly am asking. I, I would look at the sales team or the sales leader or the owner and say, do we have a very, very clear finite, strategic, workable list of target accounts. And that might mean growable customers or we can get a lot more revenue from people that already buy from us, either through selling them more or meeting more people or cross-selling. That would be part one of the list. And then obviously part two of the list would be ideal profile prospects. Who else looks and smells like the people that get the most value from us that we should be targeting? I will tell you that 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 exercise of are we really laser focused on the right prospects is something often taken for granted by management and ownership and just left to the salespeople. So number one, do you have a great list? Number two, are you really articulating value? When you, when you talk, when you write, when you um, leave voicemails on sales calls, do you lead with your offering and the solution or do you lead with issues that get your clients and your prospects attention, their pains, their problems, their results, Right. That's I mean, are we really sharp when we communicate? Unfortunately, most sellers are not. They are very self-focused and they talk about their company and their offerings and why they're so great. Not the real reasons that people buy from them. So that'd be number two. And the number three, I would ask them to be very honest with themselves 
and what percent of their time, particularly the salespeople's time, what percent of the salespeople's time is really spent selling? Not cleaning the bathrooms, not sitting in sales team meetings, not safety committee meetings, right? Not doing service projects or running donuts or deliveries to customers, which is what a lot of salespeople spend a lot of time doing. How much time is spent in proactive selling mode pursuing those ideal pro ideal pro and I, I'm telling you, we can solve a lot of sales problems if with a good list, a great story, and a calendar that's much more dedicated to developing new business. I, I hope everybody that's listening wrote those three things down. That, that lesson that, right that there lesson is right worth there a million dollars. Million dollars. Yeah, well, you know what's crazy? I'm with, I'm, I don't know how to say this easily. I'm amazed I get paid to tell people this because that, there's not a lot of rocket science there, right? I mean, Doug, that's stuff you and I did all of our lives intuitively. Right. That's that's the job of a salesperson. Now, the other piece of the equation, which I didn't touch on, which is really what's in my in my new book, Sales Management Simplified, is that those things alone are not going to transform the sales culture and sales results. Those are great sales process questions. But where's the leader of the sales team and how is he or she behaving and leading the team? And is there a high performance culture and is there accountability and is it fun? And does the compensation plan make sense or is it breeding complacency? Because you add everything, mean, if you took everything we talked about today, that's pretty much all I know about sales. You know, we talked about the talent piece earlier and who's in what role. And we talked about targeting and the story and the calendar. The last piece of it that really matters is what's the culture? How's the team being led, right? Is it fun? Do we hold people accountable? Um, are we really going after it? And is the manager doing their job really leading the team or is the manager playing administrator or firefighter in chief? And if you, if you, if you get that thing tackled, then you've got something. Mike, awesome stuff. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for uh, being an early guest on the Demand Generation Show. Um, you, you're going to make it really hard for our guests in the future. You got you, big bar there. Thanks for joining us. And I'm sure we're going to find another reason uh, to engage soon. And I'll get you the baseball schedule so you can get out to D.C. All right. I'm coming. Thank you for the invitation. I'm honored to be on your show early. And I'm excited to listen to future episodes. Thanks for uh, all the value you bring to the sales community. Well, I don't know about you, but right now I'm ready to pick up the phone and make a few calls to some prospects. I can't wait to listen to the interview one more time while we're editing it because I'm sure I'm going to pick up a whole bunch more. Mike, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Just to kind of summarize, here are my five key takeaways from the conversation. You know, I think first and foremost, if you don't have a clear target list of who you're pursuing, then frankly, you're not really serious about growth. You've got to be clear on that. You've got to know who you want to do business with. You've got to have that core profile. I, I am shocked every day when I work with companies with just how little they know about who they want to do business with. And then they blame their sales team that the growth isn't happening the way they want it to. Here's the second thing, and I can't echo it uh, any more than what Mike said successful salespeople don't look like everyone else in your company. If you're looking for somebody to go out and get deals and close business, you know, frankly, you're not looking for a team player. You're looking for somebody who enjoys doing things on their own. They enjoy being out there. They enjoy being that rugged individualist. Make sure that you build the systems to support them and make sure that you're attracting the right people to do the right job. Everyone needs to spend two to four days a year shadowing salespeople. 
executives, operational side, especially marketers. You know, and marketers don't wait to do it. Sit down every month for a couple of hours and listen to the conversations that your salespeople have. Join them on a couple sales calls. See what's really happening in that sales interaction. Hear firsthand how clients, how customers and prospects are responding to the messages. How is the marketing material resonating? What are the real issues that salespeople have to deal with every day? And then you're in a position to support them far more effectively. You know, as Mike and I talked about, the fish just aren't jumping in boats anymore. It, you know, it was great in the late 1990s and for part of the early 2000s that, you know, you could show up and people would find you to do business. That, that's just not true anymore. You've got to be prospecting. And I agree with Mike. It almost doesn't matter who's doing the prospecting. Obviously, at Imagine, we have a preference and we provide a service in that area. But you've got to make sure that you're working the top of the funnel, that you're doing the things that lead to business being done. Don't just wait for that business to find you. And lastly, make sure you're empowering your sales team to be successful. Look at the comp plan. Look at the job descriptions. Review what you ask them to do on a day-to-day and a week-to-week basis. And think about it this way. Anytime your salespeople aren't talking directly with a prospect or preparing directly to talk directly to a prospect, then frankly, they're not doing what you're paying them to do. And if you're the reason they're not doing that, then shame on you. And if you're a salesperson and you're not doing that, realize that when you're not doing that, you're basically getting paid for nothing. Great, great insights from Mike. Uh, I'm definitely going to have him back on the show. If you want to see the summary of what we talked about, please check out the show notes. As a reminder, you can get those notes. You can see the summary at imaginellc.com slash podcast. Uh, Just look up episode four. All right, in just a couple seconds, I'm going to share a piece of technology, an app that I'm using on the email side that has provided tremendous freedom for me. And, and I really feel like now I'm controlling my email and my email's not controlling. Let me start this tech tip by asking you a question. How much email do you get? After a spam filter, I used to get on average, 150 to 200 emails a day. And and I have friends and associates who who get more email than that. Staying on top of it has always been a challenge. And and I'll tell you, I set a goal last year to be at inbox zero every day. And I've actually been at inbox zero every day since January 1st, 2015. So some people say I'm crazy to have been able to do that. One of my favorite apps mailbox, which those of you that have iPhones, you may be familiar with. Well, it's going away. And when I got news that it was going away, I got to tell you, I was, you know, I actually mourned an app. I've never felt so bad about losing a piece of technology. Luckily, I learned about this thing called SaneBox about two weeks before Mailbox told me that they were shutting everything down. And when I first heard about SaneBox and I heard everyone talking about it, I signed up for it primarily because I wanted to prove that the hype was overblown. It was another spam filter type thing that, you know, promised to give you control over your email box, but you would end up spending more time 
controlling the thing that's supposed to control than you did dealing with your email beforehand. I got to tell you, it's been totally different. I'm, I'm a huge fan of SaneBox. Um, I'm going to miss Mailbox, but not so much right now. SaneBox really puts me in charge of my email and I get to use it. It's no longer using me. So some of the really interesting, cool features about it uh, is not only does it give you that control, but it automates, it automates the control very easily. So I'm able to train things very quickly, doesn't take any time. Um, basically what it does is it separates important emails from non-important emails. So important emails come into my inbox. Non-important emails go to a folder that, that they call sane later. And then every day at the end of the day, I get an email and I can go through those emails. Sanebox tracks how you're behaving in your email. And I've been using it for about six weeks. And so far it has saved me on average four hours a week. So that's 24 hours in six weeks. Probably more important than just the direct time it saved is just the control that I feel like I have. I've gone from getting, like I said, on average 150 new emails into my inbox to today I probably get 25, 30 emails that actually come into my inbox. Uh, two features that, that give me more control that I really love. It's got a snooze feature, so I can create folders to snooze to a specific point in time. So I have a first of the month snooze folder, a 15th of the month. I've created one for each day. Um, I've created one for the weekend, et cetera. And I can create as many as I want. So when I get an email and I don't need to take action on it for some period of time, I can just put it into that snooze folder. And then it's also got a black hole folder. Um, I don't know about you. I get a lot of newsletters. Um, I get a lot of emails sometimes from people that I just assume not get. And yeah, I realized I can opt out, but I think a lot of email tools have, have gone with the route of making opting out so difficult that you're not going to opt out. So now I just slide that email into the black hole and SaneBox just sends it right to my trash folder. So it doesn't come into my inbox, doesn't go to my Sane later folder. I've opted out, but I don't have to opt out. Got to tell you, since I've had SaneBox, I've loved it as an executive, but I have to admit it scares me a little bit as a marketer. If you're sending email, understand this type of technology is, is going to become the norm. So you're really going to have to earn a place in your prospects and your customers' email box. So SaneBox, SaneBox.com, check it out. I love it. Let me know what you think of it. I know they've got a free trial, um, so you can try it out. Real easy to get set up. Uh, I think you're going to love it. That's it for episode four today. Uh, thanks again to Mike Weinberg, the new sales coach, for joining us. Uh, as a reminder, you can get summaries of this, information about SaneBox, etc., in the show notes at www.imaginellc.com slash podcast. Just look up episode four. And please, 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 if you've got any questions, if there's a topic that you'd like to see us address, if you want to challenge me or a guest on, on something that we may, we may have shared, send me an email. You can get me at Doug at Imagine LLC. You can follow me on Twitter at Doug Davidoff. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the podcast. Uh, we've got a growing list of guests that I'm totally excited about uh, talking with and, and sharing their insights with you on how you can take demand generation strategies, apply them to your business, apply them to your efforts to create consistent, 
predictable, sustainable, and scalable results. Thanks for joining us again, and we will talk to you next time.